Welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Super Mario Land, a side-scrolling platform game developed and published by Nintendo back in 1989, coinciding with the launch of the Nintendo Game Boy handheld system. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, but first, as is customary, just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 23, and I am pumped to talk to you all today. I hope you're as excited to listen as I am to talk. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing or give suggestions, comments, feedback, talk about future episodes or prior episodes. There are a couple of ways you can get in touch with me. You can either send me an email to classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, or you can send me a note on Twitter with the handle at classicgamingt. Now, I'm definitely interested in hearing what you all think, so if you feel so inclined, I would love if you reached out and dropped me a note, like I said, to talk about pretty much anything. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to go really quickly over the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, we follow a very similar, if not the same, format for every single episode of the podcast. We always start by talking about the history of the game in question and the historical context of the game. Where does it sit in the overall video and computer gaming history? And then we go into a pseudo-review kind of section, and I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numeric ranking or rating or anything like that, but we do talk about each game from several different perspectives. They are graphics, how does the game look, sound and music, how does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and the overall feel. What does it feel like to play it today versus when the game was released? And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game makes it into the Pantheon, it is that darn good. It is pretty much a certifiable classic. You should play the game. If you haven't played it before, definitely play it now because it is just as good today as when it was released previously, and it is that darn good. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are the games that are still highly recommended. They're still great experiences. They're just not quite at that Pantheon level. So certainly you should play these games, especially if you have a nostalgia or a nostalgic feeling for the game in question, or you enjoy the genre, pretty much a slam dunk, you will likely enjoy yourself. Moving on past the golden oldies are our mediocre mentions. These are where we start getting into the games that I can't really recommend to the majority of the population. They may have aged a bit poorly, or they may have had a couple of issues to begin with. These are the games where if you have love for a particular genre or nostalgia for the game, eh, you might as well go ahead and play it. Probably could be an okay experience, but I can't really recommend it to the majority of the population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we get to the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. 
I cannot recommend anybody play these games today. They have either aged incredibly poorly or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day, that being Super Mario Land. Super Mario Land is a side-scrolling platform game developed and published by Nintendo in 1989, coinciding with the launch of the Nintendo Game Boy handheld system, and as you might imagine, it was designed for that Game Boy. Now, to better understand how Super Mario Land came to be, we need to look back in Nintendo's history, and specifically, the evolution of two game industry legends, Gunpei Yokoi and Shigeru Miyamoto. Gunpei Yokoi had majored in electronics while at college, and shortly after his graduation, began his career working in a Nintendo playing card factory as the manager of one of Nintendo's card assembly lines all the way back in 1965. So for anybody who may be unaware, Nintendo, as a company, has a very long history beyond the video game industry. They became incredibly popular because of video games, but the company itself was originally founded back in 1889 as a playing card company, and for decades, that was its singular focus, especially because video games, arcades, all of that kind of stuff didn't exist yet. So when Nintendo was founded, it was a playing card company. As time went on, the focus on playing cards among the adult population started to dwindle, so Nintendo struck up a deal with Disney to use its characters on their cards, which helped to improve the company's economic prospects. That success and partnership with Disney did have one side effect, however. The cards Nintendo would produce would start to be focused primarily on the child rather than adult market. This is kind of an early example of how Nintendo was starting to shift even 50-plus years ago, towards a more family-friendly company versus more of an adult-oriented kind of consumer uh, population. Eventually, though, even that success started to dwindle, until finally, in 1964, Nintendo's stock price dropped to its lowest ever recorded levels. The company was in real financial trouble, and there was a definite possibility that Nintendo could have potentially gone under. Now, it did not go under, as I'm sure most people realize. The company managed to stay in business despite the downturn in their profits, though their focus remained on creating playing cards. One day, however, in 1966, then-Nintendo president Hiroshi Yamauchi was touring one of their factories and noticed a mechanical arm that someone had created in their spare time. When Yamauchi inquired as to who had worked on the random toy-like device, he discovered that it was something Gunpei Yokoi had put together just for fun in between assembly line maintenance periods. Yamauchi was both impressed and struck by inspiration, and asked Yokoi to develop the concept into a full-fledged toy with the goal of having it ready for the upcoming Christmas holiday season. Yokoi got to work and, in short order, developed a toy known as the Ultra Hand, which was one of Nintendo's very first toys. That product ended up selling over 1 million units. The Ultra Hand's success led to Yokoi working on a number of other Nintendo toys, and his efforts directly led to increased financial success for the company. 
enabling Nintendo to not only remain in business, but to begin to become more profitable. Still, even into the early 1970s, Nintendo remained a relatively small company, and the concept of pursuing the video game market didn't arise until after the 1973 oil crisis, which made producing toys significantly more expensive. As a result, in 1974, Nintendo decided to pivot their portfolio and begin developing video games. And the rest, as they say, is history, but we're going to talk about it anyway. At the time, if you were developing video games, it was mostly for arcades, as the home market was still in its infancy. So Nintendo began creating various light gun shooting games for arcades, with Yukoi being one of Nintendo's first video game designers. Those early efforts did eventually lead to a home console release, which was known as the Color TV Game, which was basically a set of console controller hybrid boxes that would connect to a television and play a single game, similar to the original Pong systems or other simple arcade-style games. So remember, this time in history, the concept of a cartridge-based home console was just starting to gain traction with the introduction of the Magnavox Odyssey, so it wasn't commonplace for home consoles to play multiple games yet. The way it basically worked is you would get a box, and that box was dedicated to a game. It was kind of a plug-and-play kind of thing because you couldn't really change what game was in there. Now, some of the boxes had a few different games built in, all usually with a similar kind of format, like there might be three racing games, let's say. And that's just a purely hypothetical example, not to say that there was a release with three racing games. But this was not something where you had interchangeable cartridges or interchangeable game connections. It was just a box for a game. If you wanted to play all of the games, you had to buy all of the boxes. So Nintendo's Color TV game was one of these standalone systems. It was designed as a standalone experiences, and there were five models that would be released by Nintendo by 1980. Now, it was also during this time that a new employee joined Nintendo, becoming the newest member of Gunpei Yokoi's team. That individual was Shigeru Miyamoto. Now, Miyamoto is quite possibly one of the most well-known video game designers and visionaries of all time, which is a reputation that he's gained over a 40-plus year career. The guy is as close to a video game rock star as video game developers and designers can be. But back in 1977, he was simply a recent college graduate that wanted to pursue a career in manga illustrations. A chance interview with Nintendo president Yamauchi changed that trajectory, and Miyamoto would be hired to support Yukori in the creation of the Color TV game, with Miyamoto's primary responsibility being the design of the external plastic case for the console. Later in 1978, Miyamoto would be responsible for creating the art for Sheriff, which was a Nintendo arcade title. So he started to get more involved on the video game side of things, started in design and started to then move up into different roles with somewhat more responsibilities. If we fast forward to 1980, though, Nintendo was in a bit of a bind. While the company was still driving forward innovations in the home gaming market, such as the Game & Watch, which was a small handheld system that played very simple games on an LCD screen, and by the way, Gunpei Yokoi actually created the Game & Watch, and the story behind that is pretty interesting. Apparently, one day, he was watching somebody, and it wasn't clear exactly who, but he was watching somebody kind of playing around with an LCD calculator in his hand, and Yokoi thought to himself, huh, 
we might be able to make a handheld game that would that would basically be something that'd be more fun than just playing around with numbers on a calculator and that's what would eventually become the game and watch so yokoi was was really ahead of his time and from an engineering perspective and certainly from a concept standpoint he was doing a lot of cool things and he's done a lot of cool things over the course of his career going back to nintendo though they were still trying to push that home gaming market but not really fully saturated yet and if we look at their arcade side the arcade prospects that they had in play were starting to cause some financial issues. The company had just expanded into the United States before Nintendo was purely a Japanese company. So they were starting to expand abroad and they founded Nintendo of America. One of their first ventures in North America was the release of the arcade game Radar Scope, which was a game that had done pretty well in Japanese arcades. As you might expect, expectations were high for the North American release because they saw some pretty strong success over in Japan, but unfortunately, shipments to Nintendo of America were delayed, which meant when the game would finally arrive on North American shores, interest for the title had completely waned, so much so that only 1,000 of the 3,000 units they produced initially were actually purchased by arcade operators. So Nintendo was sitting on at least... 2,000 units of an arcade machine that they could not use, they could not sell. And this was a significant amount of money. Arcade machines were not cheap back then. Well, they're still not cheap today, but they were certainly not cheap. And sitting on over two-thirds of the inventory that you had developed for a given title was not a good news story. So Nintendo needed a way to recoup their investment, and they needed to do it quickly because they were kind of in a financial bind. Nintendo leadership sent out a mass call to try to figure out a way to salvage the unused arcade cabinets. They basically said to almost everybody in the company, let's brainstorm and figure out how we can do something with them so that we don't lose all of that investment, all of that money for those extra units. The man who would eventually come to the rescue was none other than Shigeru Miyamoto, who conceptualized a game where a big brute would kidnap a princess with you, the player, controlling a man who had to traverse steel girders, climb ladders, and jump over obstacles to save the damsel in distress. That concept is what would eventually evolve into Donkey Kong, and that player-controlled character would be the first incarnation of the legendary Mario. Now, there is some story behind the development of Donkey Kong, and we're not going to get into a whole heck of a lot of it here because this episode is not about Donkey Kong, but I can certainly see a future where we go into the specifics around the creation of Donkey Kong and how it was originally conceptualized as actually a Popeye game, if anybody's familiar with that cartoon, and some of the other specific situations around that development. Suffice it to say, the history of Donkey Kong is very interesting in and of itself, and I don't mean to tease anybody with this, but just to just to say, if anybody's interested, look into that, and uh, we'll probably have a future episode on Donkey Kong at some point. So, going back to Miyamoto, he conceptualized the idea for Donkey Kong, but he did not work in a vacuum. It's not like he was just sitting in his office making everything happen himself. In fact, he had turned to his boss and Nintendo mentor, Gunpei Yokoi, for advice and feedback. 
With Yukoi acting as the overall supervisor for the project, Miyamoto and a small team created conversion kits for the unsold radar scope cabinets, eventually releasing Donkey Kong to arcades in 1981. So this was the way they were going to utilize those additional units for radar scope. They were basically going to create conversion kits. They were going to install new memory modules or new game chips into those arcade cabinets, install brand new artwork onto the cabinets themselves, and they would then release those unused radar scope cabinets as Donkey Kong. And that happened in 1981. Now, the initial reception amongst North American arcade owners, it was a little bit skeptical. They weren't really sure this was going to work. However, they started to see significant sales from people playing the machines, and that led to them ordering even more units to keep up with that demand, well beyond the 2,000 repurposed machines that were originally converted. What was the end result of all that? So if Nintendo had not been able to recoup that investment, they would have lost millions of dollars with those unused arcade machines. With Donkey Kong, they turned that potential loss of millions into a $280 million profit by 1982. Now, that was $280 million in 1982 money. If you adjust that for inflation, that would be the equivalent of around $830 million today in a year with one arcade property. Absolutely insane, insane success. So with Donkey Kong, there were two legends that would be born. Miyamoto and Mario. We could talk about the origins of Mario as well, with him originating in Donkey Kong, originally named Jumpman, I believe, and eventually being called Mario after the Nintendo of America landlord, if I remember the story correct. But we're not going to go into that detail yet. The bottom line is that Miyamoto used the Donkey Kong arcade game as a springboard to the start of an illustrious career, designing numerous hit titles and spawning franchises that would be beloved to this very day. Generally speaking, when I think about Nintendo, one of the first people I think about is Shigeru Miyamoto. He is a true living legend. Throughout the 80s, he would churn out a continuous stream of hits, most notably Super Mario Brothers, also its predecessor, Mario Brothers, and of course sequels beyond that, and The Legend of Zelda. His success meant that any time Nintendo needed a killer game for one of their consoles, most likely they'd be turning to Miyamoto to help design it. He was and is that good. Now, as Miyamoto continued to rise in the company, his relationship with Gunpei Yokoi would continue to flourish, with Miyamoto considering Yokoi as both a close friend and mentor. Both would often collaborate on game designs, and Yukoi was always ready to provide advice whenever Miyamoto asked for it. Yukoi himself would continue to prove himself as one of the most innovative engineers at Nintendo. Beyond the creation of the Game & Watch back in the early 80s, he'd pioneer additional innovations such as the creation of the directional control pad, otherwise known as the D-pad, and the Rob robot accessory for the Nintendo Entertainment System. So yeah, you heard that right. Without Yukoi, there would be no D-pad. There would be no digital pad on your console controllers. Absolutely crazy to consider. Yokoi's influence actually extended to game development as well. Besides his mentoring relationship with Shigeru Miyamoto, which we had already discussed, Yokoi also worked closely with a man named Satoru Okada, 
who would go on to direct both the original Metroid and Kid Icarus games, with Yukori producing both titles. As the 80s moved on, two major hardware innovations would begin to be developed at Nintendo. One was the company's answer to the Sega Genesis and TurboGrafx-16, both of which had higher quality graphics than the Nintendo Entertainment System. In order to maintain their grip on the marketplace, Nintendo decided to create their own 16-bit console, which would evolve into the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. The other major hardware innovation was the creation of a brand new portable gaming system conceived by Gunpei Yokoi and Satoru Okada, that being the Nintendo Game Boy. Nintendo believed that their first-party characters were true system sellers, and as such, they wanted to leverage their intellectual property for the release of both of their upcoming systems. Their most popular character, by far, was Super Mario, and he'd already appeared in three separate titles for the NES at this point. So Nintendo made the decision to ready Mario launch titles for both the Super Nintendo and the Nintendo Game Boy. The thing is, Miyamoto was heavily involved with the development of Super Mario World for the Super Nintendo launch, and he was also involved with the creation of The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past, also for the Super Nintendo. So it pretty quickly became clear that having him work on yet another Mario title at the same time as he was working on those two gargantuan projects just wouldn't be feasible. Still, Nintendo leadership firmly believed that they needed a Mario title to launch with the Game Boy. With Miyamoto being unavailable, it was decided that Miyamoto's mentor, Gunpei Yokoi, would produce the new Mario adventure, while Yokoi's other protege, Satoru Okada, would direct the title. This collaboration would eventually lead to the creation of Super Mario Land for the Nintendo Game Boy. Now, the creation of Super Mario Land represented unique challenges for the team that was creating that experience driven primarily by the fact that the Game Boy had significantly less capabilities than the Nintendo Entertainment System that Mario previously lived on. So let's talk a little bit about the Game Boy. I'd venture a guess, anybody who was alive back in the late 80s into early 90s, you probably have at least heard of the Game Boy or you have some understanding of the Game Boy. You may have even owned a Game Boy. So this was a handheld device. It was an LCD screen monochromatic screen, only two bit graphics screen was around two and a half, 2.6 inches or so, which was once again, the detail of graphics on the original game boy dramatically less than what you would have on the NES with eight bit colors and full color kind of graphics. The game boy just couldn't do that. It was purely monochromatic with their screen. And for what the game boy was, which was effectively a console that could accept different cartridges and play, a myriad of games, it wasn't originally designed that way. In fact, Yokoi had originally conceptualized the Game Boy as a natural evolution to the Game & Watch. The Game & Watch were these non-cartridge-based systems, handheld, and you would buy them and they would have a game or two or three on them on very simple LCDs. They were basically time wasters. They weren't in-depth kind of games. They weren't things that you would spend hours upon hours playing at any given time. And he wanted to create the Game Boy originally as the evolution of the Game & Watch, meaning not necessarily a cartridge-based system. It would be very simple kind of games. It would have a very simple LCD screen, just basically another way to kill time. But Okada actually changed Yokoi's mind. He convinced him to make it a more traditional console with interchangeable cartridges, basically making it very similar to what the NES would be since it had 
different games developed and designed on cartridges that could then be swapped in and out depending on what the player would want to play. So this was huge. This was a big deal to be able to provide that degree of interaction in a handheld system and that ability to change the game and have a ton of different games that would eventually be sold for the Game Boy. If it wasn't for Okada, we may never have had the Game Boy. And the Game Boy is one of the most popular consoles ever created. It sold a ton. It sold so much that nearly everybody in my family, adults included, back in the late 80s, early 90s, all had a Game Boy. Now, granted, they pretty much only played Tetris, but they still had one. And that's the important thing. The Game Boy was a cultural phenomenon. Anyway, the Game Boy was a big deal. And with its upcoming launch, the team wanted to create that Mario title, that console seller. And they wanted to create it in a way that felt like the original games. The issue was trying to take the original games and convert it into the Game Boy was going to be challenging because of those different limitations that we already talked about. So they had to think of how they were going to effectively shrink everything about a typical Mario adventure to fit within the Game Boy's limitations, and that would drive several different design decisions. All of the graphics would end up being much smaller than the NES version of Mario. But rather than have a zoomed-in kind of perspective to take advantage of the fact that, yeah, the screen might be smaller, but at least you can see some of the details, they kept a zoomed-out view of the screen, similar to what you would see on the NES. The difference is, the NES was typically being played on a 14-plus-inch television at the time, and the Game Boy was a 2.6-inch screen. So to keep that same zoomed-out view, the graphics all looked uh, incredibly shrunk in comparison to the original NES-based Mario games. Now, one of the other considerations, because there was no color, because the, the screen was monochromatic and it was only two-bit colors, certain items, like the one-up mushrooms, had to be redesigned to be hearts instead. The reason being, in the NES version of Super Mario, one-up mushrooms were simply green reskins of the normal power-up mushrooms, which were more kind of red oranges in colors. The power-up mushrooms, of course, being the ones that make Mario grow larger, the one-up mushrooms being ones that add an additional life to uh, your stock of lives. On the Game Boy, there would be no way to represent different colored mushrooms effectively. They just didn't have the colors. So the one-up mushroom had to be given a more distinct appearance. The team decided to change that into a heart. So if you see a heart in Super Mario Land, that is a one-up and anytime you see a mushroom, that is a power-up mushroom. That's the one that kind of makes Mario grow in size. Uh, the team also had to take the overall world size that you would see in the typical Mario adventure and dramatically reduce it to fit onto the Game Boy cartridge. So the original NES Mario Brothers had eight different worlds and four levels in each of those worlds for a total of 32 levels, not including some of the special levels that they embedded within the game, the secret levels, so to speak, which in and of themselves are uh, kind of awesome anyway. But beyond that, Super Mario 2, well, that was a little bit of an oddity. At least the Super Mario 2 version in America was an oddity, so you can't really do a, a direct compare there. Super Mario 3 was massive, had multiple worlds and tons of levels in each world and different branching paths you could go down. If That was a phenomenal 
game. Super Mario Land being designed on the Game Boy just didn't have that ability. They couldn't add as much as what you would have in those adventures. So they ended up compressing the world into simply four worlds, each of which had three levels. So you had a total of 12 levels in all for Super Mario Land, which was dramatically smaller than what you had in other Mario adventures for the Nintendo Entertainment System at the time. That's not to say that the game was solely a list of compromises. Super Mario Land also innovated on the classic Mario formula. As the first Mario game without Miyamoto at the helm, the team wanted to create an experience that would be familiar to longtime players, but also distinct enough to show that this had a different set of fingerprints on it. These shifts and innovations included a bunch of different things. One of them was the creation of a brand new world, which was known as Sarasaland. So rather than returning to the Mushroom Kingdom, the team would create a brand new world for Mario to adventure in. Now this brought with it a degree of realism as opposed to the more fantastical elements of the Mushroom Kingdom, as each land in Sarasaland was based on real-world cultures from ancient times. You had lands based on China, on Egypt, Bermuda, and Easter Island. Across those lands, enemies would behave differently than their prior counterparts. So even when you would have an enemy that may have existed in a prior Mario game, they would act a little bit differently here. As an example, Koopas in Super Mario Land have their shells explode once you beat them, as opposed to being kickable and or able to be picked up in other Mario Brothers titles. Also, rather than saving Princess Peach, you'd be tasked with saving Princess Daisy, and this is actually the first appearance of Princess Daisy in any video game. So this was her, effectively, origin story. Coming along with Princess Daisy is the fact that rather than having Bowser be the big bad guy of the game, you'd have to face off against Tatanga, who was an alien that hypnotized the people of Sarasaland and took over the world. They also changed some of the power-ups. We already talked about how the one-up mushroom would evolve into a heart, but also the fire flower, which existed in all of the Mario Brothers titles uh, previously, would not make an appearance in Super Mario Land. Instead, there would be a Super Ball flower. So instead of having fireballs that would shoot out, you'd have a Super Ball, which would have physics very similar to what you might see in, in like a breakout clone where you throw the ball and it bounces around to all different surfaces using whatever the angle is that's hitting those surfaces until it eventually makes contact with something or I guess over a certain period of time or maybe number of surfaces that it hits, it will eventually disappear. So no fireballs in this game. It was simply throwing super balls. And one of the other big innovations, this is more from a level design perspective. Every single level had two exits that you could exit the level from. And it's not like they were on different paths or anything like that for the most part, but it was at the end of each level, there would be two exits. One exit would be at the bottom of the screen, and that was very easily accessible. Basically, you just walk along the bottom floor and you would be able to get into that bottom exit and then go on to the next level. There was another exit at the top of the screen, and that usually required some sort of platforming to reach. You might have to jump from platform to platform in order to get to that top exit, or you might have to walk across a bunch of blocks that were going to fall out from underneath you as you landed to get to the exit, but there is some reward associated with that risk. If you take the top exit, you'll be presented with a short mini-game where you could potentially acquire extra lives or power-ups to aid you with the rest of your adventure. So there was a benefit for going for that upper exit versus the more easily accessible lower exit. 
And one of the other big innovations, which I actually enjoyed, and we'll talk more about that when we get to the, the review-ish section of the discussion, but in addition to the traditional side-scrolling platform levels like you would see in any Mario game, this game also included side-scrolling shooter levels like what you would see in Gradius. Now, interestingly, Miyamoto had originally wanted to include side-scrolling shooter levels in the original Super Mario Bros., but he and the team couldn't figure out how best to program the functionality. With this game, the team would figure out a way to do it, and they would include those side-scrolling shooting levels. I think there were two of them across the entire game. They would include those levels in the game for the release on the Game Boy. So as the general game world and related designs came into focus, attention shifted to the music, which is also a key part in making you feel like you're playing a Mario game. Rather than work with Koji Kondo, who was the original composer for Super Mario Brothers, he was actually working with Miyamoto on both Super Mario World and A Link to the Past. So just like Miyamoto, he was completely consumed with those titles. So for Super Mario Land, the team would recruit Hirokazu Tanaka to create the music for Super Mario Land. Yokoi and Akata had actually worked with Tanaka before during the development of both Metroid and Kid Icarus, and Tanaka had even worked with Miyamoto on the original Donkey Kong arcade game. He had created many of the sound effects for Mario's footsteps and jumps. So by this point, Tanaka was a Nintendo veteran, so the team felt very comfortable having him work on the Game Boy soundtrack. Eventually, the Game Boy's hardware would be ready to launch, and many across Nintendo believed that Super Mario Land would be the obvious choice to be the pack-in title for the system. But, after prolonged negotiations, it was decided that the popular puzzle title Tetris would instead be bundled with the Game Boy. So Super Mario Land would have to fend for itself on the marketplace. And like I said, Tetris was a big thing in our household, everybody played Tetris. It didn't matter, young or old, Tetris was the game for the Game Boy. So Super Mario Land ultimately ended up being sold on the market as a traditional title, albeit a launch title. And that is exactly what happened, because the Game Boy, along with Super Mario Land, would eventually launch in 1989. Now, the early reviews of the system, the actual Game Boy system, were kind of in the middle a lot of people believed that its upcoming competition, like the Sega Game Gear and the Atari Lynx, would beat the system handedly due to their advanced processing capabilities and the fact that they both had color graphics. The critics did praise the Game Boy for its potential, but early on, it seemed like the Game Boy was going to be a flop. The only thing is, in this case, the critics were very very wrong. The Game Boy would win the hearts of gamers and non-gamers alike and would go on to be one of the highest selling game consoles of any kind of all time, selling over 118 million copies during its production run. Super Mario Land, spurred on by the Game Boy's unexpected success, would similarly go on to be both a critical and commercial success, with critics praising the fact that a true Mario adventure could be played in the palm of your hand. Super Mario Land ended up selling over 18 million copies, which, to put it into perspective, was more copies than Super Mario Bros. 3 sold. This is crazy to me. Super Mario Bros. 3 was Miyamoto's crowning achievement up to that point, and it was a true landmark title for the original NES. Super Mario Land, which was truly a bite-sized replica of the original Super Mario Bros., without Miyamoto's involvement, had eclipsed one of the most loved games of all time. 
Super Mario Land's success would spawn two sequels, also on the Game Boy, both of which would continue to innovate in some respects while, at the same time, returning the game series to its roots. As Yukoi's team became more familiar with how to use the power of the Game Boy, and they should since they were the team that also designed it, their games became more and more advanced, with each successive Super Mario Land adventure topping the prior one in terms of technical achievement. While subsequent Super Mario Land releases would return to a more traditional Mario formula, and future Mario titles would be helmed by Miyamoto, the first Super Mario Land holds a special place in gaming history. As probably the most different Super Mario title ever made, outside of the North American version of Super Mario Bros. 2, it has the unique distinction of representing a different team's take on the framework Miyamoto created in the mid-80s. A smaller scale, more easily digested adventure provided newly portable gamers with a landmark title that would sell more copies than any of its contemporary Mario peers, while at the same time continuing the tradition of quality Mario titles being developed by a team of highly talented Nintendo developers and engineers. Super Mario Land may not have been the biggest Mario adventure, but there's no doubt that its impact was just as large as any other Mario title that had been released up to that point. transition to talk about what it feels like to play Super Mario Land today versus when it was released over 30 years ago. So let's talk about the general gameplay. If you've played a Mario game, you're gonna understand the general gameplay of this game because it is effectively Mario but on a small screen. So Super Mario Land is a side-scrolling platformer where you have to traverse multiple levels. You've got to avoid and or defeat enemies. You may have to go through different stages where you have different kinds of obstacles. And that's actually true because with each of the individual lands across the uh, Sarasa Land Kingdom, you would have different enemies per land, all of which would have different interactions and actions that you would have to either avoid or deal with in some capacity. Uh, so as you would move through these lands, just like any other Mario title, you would have to do some platforming. You'd have to avoid obstacles. You'd have to jump onto moving platforms in certain instances. There was one interesting obstacle that was added, uh, which were basically these rolling or bouncing rocks, which were a little tricky to get over. The way it would work is these rocks would be rolling around or bouncing around on the screen, typically over an area with spikes or pits or something like that, where you couldn't otherwise traverse the level. And you would have to jump onto those rocks and then just kind of ride them across to whatever their destination would be. So that was a new obstacle that I don't recall being in a prior Mario title at that point. I could be wrong, but I don't think there was anything quite like that. Uh, but in any event, each individual world would have different enemy types. Some of them were a little tricky to avoid or to, to make sure that you wouldn't accidentally get hit by them versus trying to jump on them and actually kill them. Uh, I did enjoy the fact that each of the enemies were specifically themed to the individual worlds that you were navigating. 
I will say that there were a lot of enemies that were different than the, the traditional enemies encountered in the Mushroom Kingdom. Sure, you'd have the Koopas, but like we talked about before, they would act differently, and the the act of defeating the Koopas was very different because their shells would explode and you couldn't actually pick them up. Uh, that was a surprise to me when I first jumped on a Koopa and thought, oh, it's going to just gonna, gonna be a shell that I can kick around, and nope, no, it was not. So that was a little interesting. I believe they also had Goombas in the game, but there were a lot of unique enemies that only existed in Sarasaland, which I enjoyed. I liked the fact that they added some diversity there, and it wasn't just using the same kind of enemies that we're all used to through three-ish Mario adventures up to that point. Like we talked about previously, there were only 12 total levels in the game, two of those being side-scrolling shooters, one of which you were in a submarine, the other you were in an airplane. And I gotta say, I enjoyed those side-scrolling levels much more than I probably should have. Uh, it was it was really fun to have a change of pace within the game to be able to, rather than do the traditional platforming Mario kind of stuff, instead you're, you're flying around sideways shooting some bad guys or shooting some blocks to try to get power-ups and things like that. It was a lot of fun. Those levels, I could actually see myself playing a game full of those levels, but we'll talk more about that in a couple minutes. If you do actually beat the game, and it's relatively short at only 12 levels, you can play the game again on hard mode. We talked about the fact that at the end of the levels, there are some mini games that you could potentially gain some lives. So there were some differences between this game and traditional Mario adventures. But for the most part, this was Mario, but on a small screen. So before we go into the specific aspects of the game, like graphics and sound and all that good stuff, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because back when this was released, a lot of times we wouldn't necessarily have magazines to go to, and for in all instances at least, to look at what an upcoming game was going to be. We may not have had, or we certainly didn't have the internet to look up gameplay videos or get additional information about a given game. So a lot of times if we're in a store, the only way we're going to be able to tell if we may like a game is by looking at the box and seeing how the development team or how the overall creative team marketed their titles. Now, of course, a Mario game, pretty much everybody knows Mario, so I don't think there's anybody that's going to be like, oh, who's that plumber-looking guy on the box? But you may not necessarily know what a brand-new Mario adventure will hold, especially because it was coming out on a new system. And besides that, I just like looking at the back of the boxes because I find it very interesting how these different companies market their titles. So, for Super Mario Land, the back of the box says, Join Mario in a world of strange creatures. Ancient ruins, giant crabs, Koopa Troopas, flying stone heads, and hungry sharks await you in this brand new world of adventure. Travel over land, in the air, and underwater. Mario runs, jumps, and bounces his way to fortune and glory on his mission to save the princess. A beautiful kingdom on ancient ruins, tempestuous waters, and brand new challenges make Super Mario Land the best ever. And there is one single screenshot on the back of the box, and of course, the official Nintendo seal of quality, which means it has to be a good game because it has that gold symbol which of course is not entirely true. Any licensed title has that gold symbol. And as we all know, the NES was not a system with solely good games on it. 
Regardless of that, that is what the back of the box says for Super Mario Land. So now we're going to start talking more specifically about the individual aspects of the game, and we are going to start by talking about the graphics. I will say, the graphics for Super Mario Land were surprisingly decent, especially considering that we're talking no color and a small screen. And for context, yes, I did in fact play this on an actual Game Boy. So I got the real experience of playing the game. And the graphics looked fine. It was a little zoomed out, to be honest. It was, the details were a little bit obscured because you didn't have quite as much visual fidelity. They, they did try to add some background elements to the individual stages, and you could kind of see where there were stages that were set in ruins or Egypt kind of levels and things like that. They added some additional elements there that were useful in helping to depict what each of the levels were, but the graphics were were fine. The frame rate and the animations for all of the characters were very smooth. The graphics, like I said, were a little zoomed out, didn't have a ton of detail, but they had enough detail to be recognizable. All of the enemies that I encountered were well-designed. They looked good on the screen, but they really were kind of tiny. They tried to cram a whole lot of game into such a small screen. And for the most part, it worked, but I might have preferred more detailed, larger sprites with less visible area around me over a miniaturized view of the world. And for what it's worth, the later Super Mario Land titles would go in this direction of having a little bit more of a zoomed-in kind of perspective. You lose a little bit of the overall view to your sides and above you and below you, but you gain a lot more detail in the character designs and you just have an overall better feeling experience, at least from a graphical presentation perspective. Still, Super Mario Land, the original, the graphics were not bad at all. Now, moving on to the sound and music. This one was actually surprising to me. The music, despite the limitations of the Game Boy, held up incredibly well. And I'd even put it against some NES and Super Nintendo soundtracks for the overall quality. I have no idea what wizardry was used to make the Game Boy sound so good, especially as a launch title. But it was truly amazing. I loved the music in this game. And it's funny because I played this game when I was a kid. When it originally came out, I played Super Mario Land. I will admit, I didn't have many memories of Super Mario Land. It was one of those kind of small adventures I played at some point and then put off to the side, and I didn't really revisit it after that. It never caught my attention back then quite as much as the other Mario adventures would, like Super Mario 3, which is one of my favorite Super Mario games of all time, and then Super Mario World, which would come out just a little bit later, which was just amazing. So Super Mario Land, I played, but I never really went back to until just recently for this podcast. Uh, so I didn't really remember much about the game, but as soon as I started playing it, and as soon as I heard the music, that I remembered. The music is entirely memorable. The music is just amazing. I, I have no more positive words to say about the music. I would listen to this music as a soundtrack separate and apart from the game. It is probably my favorite part of this particular Mario adventure is the music. It was just so well done. Highly recommend you to listen to the music. If nothing else, if you don't feel like playing the game, okay, fine. Listen to the music. The music was really good. Uh, the sound effects for the game were also very well done. They were kind of typical Mario fare. Nothing really to call out. 
there, but it was, they were still fine. I mean, but the music, wow, the music was outstanding. Moving on to the narrative and story, you know, a lot of times I paraphrase this stuff. For this one, I don't know that there's a better way to learn about the story other than to read it directly from the game's manual. So, within the game's manual, this is the story for Super Mario Land. Once upon a time, there was a peaceful world called Sarasaland. In this world, there were four kingdoms named Birabudo, Muda, Easton, and Chai. One day, the skies of Sarasaland were suddenly covered by a huge black cloud. From a crack in this cloud, the unknown space monster Tatanga emerged to try to conquer Sarasaland. Tatanga hypnotized the people of all the kingdoms so that he could control them in any way he liked. In this way, he took over Sarasaland. Now, he wants to marry Princess Daisy of Sarasaland and make her his queen. Mario came to know of these events, and he has started on a journey to the Chai Kingdom, where Princess Daisy is held captive, in order to restore peace to Sarasaland. Can Mario defeat Tatanga, release people from his interstellar hypnosis, and rescue Princess Daisy? It's all up to you and Mario's skill. Go for it, Mario. So that's the story. <laughs> that's the story in a nutshell. Uh, it was pretty typical for a Mario game. As I've said prior episodes, the platformers, you don't need a whole heck of a lot of story. For me, the platform kind of games are much more focused on the gameplay. That's really what their core gameplay loop or their core uh, focus is all about. So I don't need a ton of story here. I always enjoy when a narrative or story is included in one of these games because I just find it interesting what the developers come up with. This being a Mario title, you know, it's going to be a little bit far-fetched, a little bit fantastical. The story works for me, pretty typical uh, to what you would see in other Mario adventures. No complaints uh, here. I do find it interesting that rather than rely on the Mushroom Kingdom, the developers decided to go to a brand new land to basically unshackle themselves from the framework that Miyamoto had created to give them a little bit more flexibility to make something more independently for themselves. So I liked that, that they went to a different land and that they kind of constructed this, this new kind of story. The whole alien thing, a little weird. Just from my standpoint, I don't know. I mean, not to say that that that's totally far-fetched because Mario itself is pretty far-fetched. But the alien thing, eh, I don't know that that is 100% my cup of tea, personally. But I can't complain. I mean, it's a Mario game. It's a platform platformer. Any story here is, is pretty much going to hit the mark or fit the bill. So I can't really complain about the narrative or the story for this one. Moving on to the playability and controls, this one for me is a little bit of a mixed bag. Overall, the controls felt fine, and the game is definitely playable. That said, Mario just feels different in this game. It's almost as though he has no inertia or true momentum. And anybody who's played a Mario title knows what Mario is supposed to feel like. Super Mario Land, he just doesn't feel like Mario. Basically, the way it works is when you jump onto a platform, if you try to stop, you truly stop immediately. It's not like there's a little bit of forward momentum that you have to offset by pressing back and not falling off a platform or something. So with that said, there were times where I would jump onto a platform and I'd press back to try to stop 
thinking, oh, I've got to, I've got to do that. I've got to reverse my momentum to make sure I don't fall off the platform forwards. And I would ultimately push myself backwards off the platform, which gotta tell you is a little frustrating. So this did take some getting used to, and I died way more than I care to admit because of how different it felt than a traditional Mario adventure. I did eventually acclimate to the controls and the different style of movement, but I definitely prefer the more traditional feel of other Mario games. I do want to say though, and I mentioned this before, I loved the side-scrolling shooter levels. They were super simple, but Honestly, a really nice change of pace, and they were very well done. They were just simple, fun couple levels. I would play a whole game of Mario shooting levels if one would ever be released. I truly enjoyed those, and they didn't have any of the control issues as the traditional platforming levels would have because they didn't really rely on momentum or inertia or anything like that. It was just pure, straight, side-scrolling shooting, and I loved those levels. So how did it feel overall? to play the game all those elements together how did it feel playing the game today versus when it was released i will say that this game super mario land felt like a low-fat version of a traditional mario title almost the same great taste but just much less filling i can't really complain about much of the individual elements of the game the graphics the sound the narrative they were all pretty much spot on and some of those like the sound top-notch absolutely loved the music especially considering the system that it was developed for but i gotta say again i do have a bone to pick about the controls i really really didn't like the feel of controlling mario it just was not natural to me it did not feel like a mario adventure moving him around and jumping around and The way it worked, it just did not feel like controlling Mario. I also thought that the game was much too short and easy. So just to give you a little bit of perspective here, the reason I played Super Mario Land in the first place was that we actually had a power outage a couple weeks ago, and I needed to figure out some way to pass the time that didn't involve the internet or electricity, because most of my day is spent with the internet and electricity. So when you don't have either of those things, your mind starts to wander into deep, dark places. And I didn't want to have that happen. So I went and I tried to find my nearest portable system that was able to run off of batteries. And that was the Game Boy. So I decided to fire up the Game Boy. And I was thinking, well, what what game do I play? I haven't played Game Boy. I hadn't played Game Boy in quite some time. And I saw Super Mario Land and I thought, you know what? This is the game I'm going to play. This is the first time I've played the title in over 30 years at this point. So I powered it on. The power outage itself at our house lasted a little less than an hour. I started playing the game after the power outage started, maybe like 10 minutes or so, because I started thinking, well, maybe the power will come back on and I won't have to go divert my attention elsewhere. It never came back. So I was figured, okay, I got to do something. So I got the Game Boy. So I started maybe 10 minutes into the power outage. Power outage lasted a little bit less than an hour. I finished the entire game before the power came back on. It's literally a 40-ish minute game. There's just a few levels in the There's only 12 levels. 12 levels in the game. And you combine that with a lower level of difficulty, other than the controls, which were really frustrating sometimes, It just makes it the kind of game that you won't get a ton of mileage out of. Now, sure, you could replay the game on hard mode because 
you want to continue to experience the game or get more of your money's worth out of it. I did not play it on hard mode. I believe the only thing that hard mode does is add some additional enemies at certain points, if I'm not mistaken. So it's not like it's a dramatic shift or a dramatic change to the overall game, but you could do that if you wanted to. I did not. You could also just play the game multiple times for the fun of it because the game is fun. Like the game is a fun experience. I enjoyed my time. It's just not that deep. And future Super Mario Land titles would improve upon this one in nearly every way possible. So with that, would I really want to continue to play this game when I have other options available to me? I don't know. I don't know that I would. I will say that the bonus games at the end of the level definitely were a main contributor to that lower difficulty kind of feel because you could rack up a ton of extra lives if you got lucky with some of the timing and being able to get some of the extra lives at the end of the levels. But I will say that I enjoyed the fact that the bonus existed, even though it served to reduce the overall difficulty of the experience, because I kind of liked having those extra lives. It gave me a little bit of a cushion, especially going into the levels with having literally no memory of each of them. And with the controls being what they were, it gave me a little bit of a buffer to actually be able to beat the game. Plus, getting to the bonus stage themselves did take a little bit of um, work to get to. It was a little challenging doing some of that platforming. Once again, primarily because I didn't like the controls. So I know I keep harping on it, but there's some times when you play a game and nearly everything feels awesome. And there's that one just nagging thing that drags it down in your eyes. For me, the controls for Super Mario Land drag it down. It was still a fine Mario adventure. It was still something I enjoyed playing, but it was not a perfect experience. So what is our overall verdict on the title? I'm going to admit up front, this is not the best Mario game ever created, at least from my perspective. I know there's a lot of people out there, especially in retrospect, that think that this is one of the greatest titles ever created. I'm not there. That, that does not align with my opinion. But I will say there is a lot to like here. The fact that it was a launch day title for the relatively low-powered Game Boy makes the game all the more impressive. Now, I definitely did have some critiques of the experience, and I still believe that Super Mario Land could have been better but I also still believe that despite the critiques and despite the fact that I didn't really like the controls or the feeling of the control of the characters and the fact that the game was short and not really all that challenging, I still believe that Super Mario Land represents a solid golden oldie. This is a game that you're likely going to enjoy if you play it, though I don't know that it's a game you're going to repeatedly play over and over again. I don't know that it has that replayability for me. It's a quality title and a worthwhile experience, but for me, it doesn't quite reach Pantheon levels of greatness. Regardless, it does more than enough to qualify as a golden oldie, and I truly believe that everyone should try it at least once in their lifetime, even if only to see what an oddity it is in comparison to other Mario titles. Despite it being different than its contemporaries, I feel comfortable with asserting that Super Mario Land is still worth your time today, and is therefore the newest member on our list of golden oldies.
was our episode on Super Mario Land. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out and let me know how I'm doing, there are a couple of ways you can get in touch with me. I do have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I also have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. So if anybody would like to reach out, provide suggestions, comments, feedback, talk about future potential episodes, talk about prior episodes, or just talk about classic technology and gaming, I'd love to hear from you and I'd love to have the discussion. I enjoy talking about this kind of stuff. Before we call it for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Karatika, which was a, a computer early, computer uh, fighting cinematic style kind of game by Jordan Mechner. So if anybody has any particularly fond memories of that title, feel free to write in. I am definitely interested in hearing what you think. At the same time, I know you're probably listening to this podcast on any number of of podcast engines just because there are a ton of them and this podcast lives pretty much everywhere that podcasts typically live so i would ask if you feel so inclined please leave a review on your podcast service of choice this is not about just trying to gather a bunch of five-star reviews though if that happens naturally awesome that means we're doing something right but it really is all about trying to create the best possible podcast that we can The only way to do that is to get feedback from the community to make sure that everything that we're doing and all the content that's being created is hitting the mark for what you all want to hear. I am interested in making sure that we hit the mark wherever possible. I'm definitely interested in any feedback that you may have, whether positive or constructive. So please let me know if you feel so inclined. We are still growing. We will always be growing. We're always going to be developing this community. So I am interested in continuing the discussion and making this the best darn podcast it can possibly be. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode on Karatika. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>